Hey, what's up, people? How you doing out there? Welcome to the most rabbit hole referencing podcast in existence. This is the Sonic Cloth. I hope everyone's doing okay. I hope you're hanging in there. I hope you're over hanging in there. I hope people are back out there and and seeing live music because uh, it's probably only a matter of time before the next variant is unleashed on us. Um, I'm, of course, praying that that shit doesn't happen, but... You know, the negativity spiral is real and, uh, you know, we got to acknowledge it. So we're back at it here. Um, you guys just keep handing me the aux cord. So I'm going to keep playing you shit that I think is not only worth your time, but maybe even worth your life. You know, that can be in the form of, uh, you know, lifelong devotion, uh, music nerd style. That could be in the form of human sacrifice even. I, I'll leave that level of commitment up to each of you. So um, for this one, I thought long and hard about what this next rabbit hole should be. And when that yielded uh, more or less nothing or, or not really nothing more so a billion different ideas and an inability to, to just finalize it. I basically decided that this would be the perfect opportunity to bring you all the second installment in this podcast's ongoing fringe psych series i guess it wasn't ongoing because i only had one before but now that we have a second one i can officially call it ongoing and what this is is basically like a mini podcast or uh, a podcast within a podcast um or as one of my old favorite podcasts uh the border boss used to say a parasitic podcast uh shout out to the borders boss i know you're not listening because uh i don't know you but your podcast and that whole family of podcasts from like five or six years ago was very influential to uh, what I'm doing today. So uh, back to today's episode. If you have no idea what I'm talking about um, with this fringe psych series stuff, I recommend going back a couple episodes and checking out uh, volume one, um, which featured some of my most uh, kind of prized, laid back, kind of tripped out jams. But today we're doing something different. This is volume two. And I'm calling this one Eastern Migration. And, uh, you know, I look at the podcast stats here and there, um, sort of like to see where my listeners uh, are at, where you all call home. And it is very safe to say that for like 90% of my audience, you are, in fact, headed eastward for this rabbit hole. So what I've pulled together for you today is, you know, a much labored over selection of uh, psych rock, uh, folk, groove, kind of hybrid of traditional musical forms from kind of all over the Eastern Hemisphere. So, um, you know, as usual, uh, I like to nail down a little bit of the parameters here because the the East is, uh, you know, on the massive side of things. So what I really wanted to, to pull out here in this episode was, um, you know, a lot of like deep kind of hybridized type music. Um, most of this music is from the 70s, maybe with a couple exceptions dipping into the 80s. And I think what I didn't want here was basically musicians in the East kind of trying their hand at like musical forms that are popularized in the West. So yeah, like that kind of stuff. And, and you know, I, I don't hate it or anything. Like, that's not what it is. I, I just wasn't really interested in tracks of like, uh, you know, like a Thai group playing like 60s R&B or like 
of Lebanese band doing like mamas and the papas impersonations like there's plenty of that stuff out there and again I'm not against it I've heard a few of those comps before you know they're a good time like good party tunes but um, I don't know Western emulation by the East just isn't really something that is interesting to me beyond like you know said party tunes and on the flip side of that the other thing that I really didn't want to do here was kind of do this whole ethnomusicology thing because you know uh, a I have no qualifications in that area whatsoever so just be a, a giant load of bullshit and and the other thing is like I just not really inter interested in covering like traditional music that originates from all these eastern cultures and has kind of like had a long and storied history and require all this like research um, it's just it's just not what we're in, we're interested in here we're interested in maybe something a little more um, superficial a little more uh, zoomed out you know consult your local uh, music nerd for for kind of a more ethnomusicology thing and when I say nerd I mean like the kind that goes to like get a degree in that kind of shit so let's get to what we're really looking for here I think what we're after is some kind of like middle ground territory where artists are who they are they very likely grew up with a particularly like entrenched musical tradition but you know, I'm interested in people that kind of had their ears open to other sounds, like both near and far. And I'm only really speculating here, but like, you know, I think within these batch of tracks that I'm going to play here, like the artist didn't feel compelled necessarily to like preserve the musical traditions of their ancestors, like when they're sitting down to like write and perform music. And, and you know, I can't say at the end of the day, like what motivated any of these artists, like individually, or even as, as I go to like group them together. I can only really rely on my ear here. And, and when I take these tracks in, I hear both like a reverence to an authentic folk expression, as well as a musically adventurous spirit that brings like the music outside of any like hard line or like perceived cultural confines. And that's, I think, where you get this like magic, like fucking hybridization that can channel so many things at once. Where you hear, you know, the, the perfect seamless blend of an artist who is like undoubtedly moved by music as a whole, but like either can't shake the musical language of their culture or whose core cultural expression is just, you know, basically borderless and kind of unbothered by like the competition of different types of musical attribution. Like what came from here? What, what traditions am I pairing forward? Like people who are just kind of not hyper focused on that. You know, they might like hear a James Brown like song and they and they hear James Brown sing and that kind of like a James Brown swagger kind of like infects them and forces its way into their music, you know, or they grow up like playing in a, a Javanese uh, gamelan ensemble or something. But that becomes a palette to like paint with beyond just like, you know, the performance of ritual music. So, you know artists that are really incorporating outer sounds um and and probably like pissing off a lot of like the really dogmatic like zealot type people in their community who are also involved in music but i think you get the point here um i'll kind of quit with the pontificating um so we can just jump right in and and let me just say this this track list was like extremely difficult for me to narrow down and even now, I don't know that I like 100% fuck with and support this track list. I mean, I, I love every track here for sure. And hopefully this will be like a primer for some and maybe even a refresher for others. But, you know, you could easily swap these out with like eight other smoking Hot tracks. Like, they're, they're not that hard to find. But that's fine. 
this is a life we chose you know it's never really enough and uh you'll never really win that's that's what you gotta remember to keep you sane um so let's go ahead and do this this is fringe psych volume two eastern migration Alright, we are kicking this episode off right. This is absolutely one of my favorite relics of the Eastern 70s psych canon. This is the godfather of Iranian psychedelic rock himself. This is Kurush Yagme, and the name of the track here is Niyayesh, and I grabbed this from the uh, Back from the Brink pre-revolution psychedelic rock from Iran. 1973 to 1979 compilation album which came out on now again records and this comp definitely turned a lot of western ears onto uh Kurush's music so i used to see the cover of this album in record stores like all the time from i don't know like seven or eight years ago because it's just this like very memorable close-up shot of Karusha's face he's got this giant like handlebar mustache and it's like the cover of the album is against this like intense orange light. And he kind of looks like he looks like a Persian geezer butler from like the early Sabbath days or something. He look he looks so fucking awesome. And and so when I like would see this record everywhere, like I, I'm sure I like picked it up and like read the description. And I'm sure I was like tempted to pick it up, but it's like a massive comp. This is like a twenty-two track huge comp on like three LPs, and it's just like one artist and you don't know what they sound like, so you're like a little bit like scared to to go all in and it just seemed like too much to gamble on at the time um, of someone i'd never heard but let me tell you i am regretting that shit later on in life because this is one of the most fire artist comps i've ever heard and and karusha's music is is really incredible i mean it's it's definitely not the most like out there or trippy like psych stuff you'll hear but it's it's just like so focused it's so melancholic it's beautifully assembled and, and, and regal, I would say. Like, it's just the kind of psych rock that, like, washes over you. And I think it's going to sound pretty, like, familiar structurally and instrumentally to, like, anyone who's into, you know, late 60s and early 70s, like, psych and garage. But there's definitely, like, a pronounced, like, Eastern sheen going on. And, and Farsi is really such a nice language, like, in general. And, and it sounds perfect just, like, over Karusha's like blend of like really melodically rich, kind of minimally produced, but like pretty clean sound. And I think this particular period of Karusha's music really brings to mind like, I don't know, I, I listen to it and I think of like the sophistication of like Arthur Lee's group Love. Although it's it's definitely not as like meticulously like arranged as anything on Forever Changes. But it just has that same kind of like sophisticated, like ultra serious take on this period of psych rock. It's just never really like silly or, or whimsical. It's, it, it's very serious. Like some of the more instrumental passages on like late era, like Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd. Um, but instead like swap out Karusha's like phenomenal deep voice, like kind of commanding everything. But um, I love this track's extended intro and, and this kind of ominous chants that connect different portions of the song to one another. And Karusha's music is also like really wonderful to listen to if you're like a guitar head. And again, like you're not getting these like face melting like solos, like there's there's no uh, Gilmore like type theatrics here. But rather this is like very just very restrained and kind of tasteful approach to guitar leads and like a little bit of like effects and manipulation. 
And this track might even lean like a bit heavier on like the Western psych rock side than anything else. But the instrumental and the vocal melodies are all like these minor scale, like Persian and Arabic uh, type sounds. Like Karusha's music is definitely like still blowing people's minds today. And, and I really can't imagine like how this all went down when it came out, especially if you were living in like, you know, pre-revolution Iran. You know, reading a little bit more about Karusha's music, like he his music was ultimately banned following the Iranian Revolution. So there was like a large period of time where this music ceased production and there was a bit of like a halting of the creative process. And I guess that's that was happening like culturally um, quite a bit. In, in this particular period of, of Iran during the time, like on the ground. But really, I would imagine Karusha's music like might be as popular or more, pop- more popular today as it was back in the mid 70s, because this truly is like timeless psychedelic rock.
این منم انسان خاکی بی فروغم گنانه بشن و آبای دلم را Okay, next up is another absolute legend of uh, psych rock, of Anatolian folk, and of classic Turkish rock. This is uh, Selda Bagchan, and the track is called Ye Lalar, and it is off of Selda's self-titled album. And and before I go on here, like do yourself a favor and, and just track down a copy of this album, because it really should be in like everyone's collection. Um, and, it, and it has to be in your collection if you're into like global groove type shit. Like it, it really just has to. In the last like several years, there's actually been a kind of an interesting like resurgence of European and Turkish bands kind of playing a style of 70s psych and folk rock that was really big in Turkey at the time. And, and while I haven't heard all of those bands, um, the ones I have heard definitely owe a huge debt to uh, Selda and her kind of brilliant run of like early Turkish psych rock and really, really beautiful folk inspired ballads. And also just like this kind of overall like Baltic kind of funkiness that they that they really spawned. Um, and, and, and I probably changed which Selda track I wanted to feature like five or six different times. It's just so difficult to pick one that like shows off everything that she can do. And and you know, by all means, like this track won't do that either. But this really shows what I think is the most like kind of beloved of all of the Zelda styles, um, at least the most emulated. And it's kind of this like mid-tempo, very funky and soulful kind of like Eastern rock. So you have these like uh, beautiful scales and melodies and, and, and kind of like full bar chord strum guitars with a lot of fuzz and wah on them. Um, you get this like electric saz kind of playing those scales sound very Turkish, sound very Eastern. And and this is kind of where a lot of the Eastern shred comes in, uh, where you just hear this like hammering up and down of those minor scales, but injecting all kinds of like flourishes and even kind of like almost proggy runs. Um, and it's, it's really, really great. 
and the bass and the drums are are in lockstep they're very funky um, they're very sampleable as well and in fact a lot of this era's like turkish psych rock has made its way onto like a lot of underground beat tapes and even more mainstream like grimy rap production um probably like most notably from the alchemists but i'm pretty sure there's like even uh, most deaf song that that uh, samples uh, Zelda as well. If I'm not mistaken, in my memory there might even be a Dr. Dre sample, but I have to look back into that. Um, so that's basically all of like the the you know instrumentation that's happening. But like the, the big seller here is really Zelda's voice, which I definitely could have picked something else that shows you this woman's like true range, but. I thought it might be more important to kind of introduce kind of the, what I think is like the Turkish sound to people if they haven't heard it. And I think if you've dabbled in psych rock from like Spain, you know, I think Turkish psych rock might be an easy river to cross because I don't know. There's just a lot of that, that similar kind of phrasings and, and familiarity, but like uh, definitely like a, a panning back to like traditional and more like folkloric type sounds from the native country but back to Selda, you know she's got such a great command she has a really really powerful presence with her vocals and i think the thing people love the most about her singing at least for me is like that sort of melancholic quiver um, and expression that is just so beloved in like you know near east arabic and african kind of folk and classical music traditions and, you know, sometimes you hear like 70s era psych and folk rock f from back in the day and the jam is cool and, and it sounds it sounds interesting and everything. But the vocalist is just kind of like, you know, sitting in for the session. It's a little bit boring. And th that is not the case here. And, and I'll say just like the the first track with Karush uh, Yagme from Iran, there's definitely like a similar element of political oppression um, in Zelda's story. And it was definitely targeted at her music and a lot of the free expression of various artists in Turkey. So like after the, the 1980 uh, Turkish coup, Selda was imprisoned like three times over the course of several years um, and really basically restricted from performing outside of Turkey. And a big part of the reason for her political repression was due to Selda singing uh, many of her songs in Kurdish, um, which the Turkish government has always been like incredibly oppressive towards. So unfortunately, this part of the world is a little bit rife with like foreign meddling and sudden transfers of power and coups. So, you know, as a result, you get a lot of censorship, you get a lot of repression, um, you get a lot of governments that are put into power um, that do not serve the benefit of the people. Um, that's kind of like a, a standard thing, but it, it's just particularly pronounced in this part of the world. And, and that repression of the arts is is definitely a bit of a constant with some of the artists that we're going to get into today. But hey, if you're, you know, pissing off the cops and the military and the status quo, then uh, you're probably doing something right.
All right, now here is a, an artist that I would have only have ever discovered if it weren't for a high-quality compilation um, and a sort of corresponding label that's uh, putting out that said comp. So the artist here is Nano's Group, and the track is called Kalang Kang. Um, the album is called Malam Mingu, A Saturday Night in Sunda which came out on the label Acuphone. I've featured this label at least a couple times in previous episodes. It's definitely a favorite of mine. And this is a French label that really, def I would say, defies all categorization. Like, But like for real, though, just kind of stroll over to like their Bandcamp page and just start clicking on things at random, and you will definitely get uh, sounds that are <laughs> from all corners of the world, from all styles, genres, eras. Like, it, it, it's just wild. So this compilation in particular documents gamelan music from the Indonesian um, archipelago, a region called Sunda, which is basically located in western Jawa, which I learned um, in doing a little bit of research is the most populous island in the world. So the time period that we're talking about here is the early 80s, and the political climate is that Indonesia had declared their independence from uh, the Dutch col uh, colonial regime. And this was about, what, the early 60s, I believe. And as a way of kind of limiting the amount of Western music that is pouring into the country, the government began to invest like very heavily in kind of reintroducing and innovating on traditional Indonesian music forms. Uh, and one of those absolutely is gamelan music, which is probably the most well-known and recognizable form of uh, traditional Indonesian music. And I honestly don't recall where I heard this particular track. Um, I know it was a few years ago, and I think I was doing what every other weirdo guy does or <laughs> when he goes down a Sun City Girls rabbit hole, um, and I'm just kind of trying to track down like all of the recorded work. But for me, and, and you know, I imagine a lot of other uh, Sun City Girls fans out there, you end up going down these kind of rabbit holes of quote-unquote world music, and I think that that's like sort of a natural kind of bridge because uh they have their sublime frequency series which is really like the most devout kind of unadulterated exploration into like you know quote unquote world music but i think it goes beyond just that their sublime frequency series i think it's because you're hearing the sun city girls actually playing different variations of this like wild music um, you know, you hear like Al kind of like intonating in this way that probably is not like does not uh, uh, line up with like the way he was brought up or his particular culture. And and you just think to yourself, like, fuck, that's that's got to come from somewhere. Right. Like, where, where is he getting where is he getting that? And and one of those wild turns they take you down, I think, is, uh, you know, Jawanese like Gamelan music that definitely comes up in, in the Sun City Girls music um, on various tracks. And, and I'm still not somebody who has any kind of like true grasp on, on gamelan ensemble music. I'm, I'm definitely more the guy who's just like spent a few hours like watching uh, gamelan on YouTube and just kind of being like mesmerized by like the arrangements and the very communal and sort of orchestrated approach to playing and these kind of like alien sounds and tones and clanks. Um, I just hear it and I and I can't help but think it's like the sound of nature, like rain pouring on top of a forest or something like that. It's just so great. But back to this track. This is a track that probably sounds, to somebody who doesn't know gamelan music at all, this probably sounds like straight up traditional. But I don't know. I like, I, and I'm not saying like I, I've heard enough of this stuff to really un know it 
and know its confines or, or it's sort of its its structure like historically but i just hear a lot of like sonic variety in this track compared to a lot of other like gamelan performed pieces that i've heard um you of course still hear like the ensemble playing you know playing the usual but there's plenty of like stringed guitar like instruments that are coming in and playing these kind of like spidery tremolo melodies and he's doing these like upstroked parts and those things really set the track into like almost like a a, a straightforward four on the four type groove which i can't say like <laughs> in my experience really happens much in gamelan music there's also these like passages of like hand clapping and whistling that also take the track into a really unexpected place too. I mean, I can't say that these are like modern touches per se, because I'm talking about like hand percussion and stringed instruments. Um, you know, that shit's been around for a minute, obviously. But I think the way that they carry the melodies and kind of uh, relegate the more traditional gamelan instruments more into the back is a very untraditional approach. And I, I just love this song. It just transports you to like a rainforest in Jawa and the melodies are just like absolutely stunning. And, and I think few tracks really are able to create a vibration like the one that is created here with this group of like brilliant players.
Okay, next up we are headed to Afghanistan. This is the one and only Ahmad Zahir. The track is called Biman A Shab, and I pulled this track from a comp of Zahir's work. And the name of the comp is Volume 3, The King of 70s Afghan Pop. And most of the music on this comp, if not all of it, is pulled from like the 60s and 70s uh, period of Zahir's music. So Ahmad Zahir was an Afghan singer, songwriter, a composer, and he's really considered like the greatest to be like the greatest of all time in Afghanistan. I mean, I think they even call him the Elvis of Afghanistan. And he doesn't sound anything like a, an Afghan Elvis, but I think he's just like truly like Elvis level big in his home country. Um, his songs were sung in uh, Dari and Pashto mostly, and, and Ahmad was really just an icon of Afghanistan like as a whole. I mean, this guy was known by everyone and be really became like a cultural symbol of sorts in pre-war Afghanistan, um, and, and as well as like a guy who really carried like the torch for peace. So his music um, really brought in a lot of Afghani folk traditions, um, but it also touched like Indian classical music, um, Persian literary and poetic sort of influences. And and we'll hear it on this track too. Like he pulls in a lot, a, a fair amount of like kind of rock and jazz music from the West, which really results in like this kind of psychedelic pastiche that is, uh, you know, I would say is like very swirling. And I think this song has a bit of an inverse approach to say like the, the Karush track that I played. Ahmad's band here really is playing like, I would say fairly traditional, especially to an untrained ear like mine. But the organ is just like definitely doing this like 50s, 60s, like swirly rock thing. And the drums are playing this like kind of very like focused, like stoned out, kind of like dubbed out shuffle type thing. Um, there's even some horn arrangements in here that are, are very like Spanish or like spaghetti sounding too. And Ahmad is just leading the entire band with these like devotional chant like vocal lines. And this song is a very droning piece that it, I don't know. It like plays out like a prayer or something. I, I don't know that it is, of course, but it's just kind of where my mind goes. And it's all really led by Ahmed's like very expressive voice that, you know, rises and falls so effortlessly. He's just putting so much feeling into these mantra like vocal melodies um, in between these like extended instrumental breaks that are just so, so awesome. And 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 I think this is a structure that has a lot in common with like Persian and Arabic classical music. And I think that makes sense given um, Ahmed's popularization of a style that is actually invented by a Persian single singer named uh, Sarban whose music proved to be like super important in the foundation of these kind of more modern Afghani styles that kind of shed that Persian influence over time. So Ahmed's music um, definitely like touched the Afghani people in part because of the simplicity of his lyrics and message. Um, you know, his music was like really easily understood by like all subsets of Afghani society, which I'm sure was a very intentional um, artistic decision. And his music was also like extremely versatile, like it occupying the space that was like singularly Afghani while remaining really open to like Western influences and not and not being uh, timid about bringing those in. So um, a very, very interesting artist um, reading a little bit more about his life. Um, he was reported to have died in a car accident at the age of 33. But if you go down some uh, some rabbit holes, there are a lot of theories out there pointing to some kind of like assassination attempt by um, the government at the time 
for both like political and personal motivations. I mean, who really knows? But, you know, never underestimate a government's murderous ambitions is all I'm saying here. But yeah, I think that's probably plenty of history for for this podcast. Um, Ahmed Zahir is a wonderful artist. And this track in particular really shows the more traditional side of things that I think gets slotted as exotica in the U.S. and Europe. But I don't know. I listen to Zahir's stuff and, and, it, and it strikes me as like, you know, the people's music. It's very spiritual in tone and transportative and just like the best way possible. Mm-hmm. 
jumping into one of my personal favorites this is nasa juan which translates to people of songs in darija which is the moroccan dialect of arabic and this group was formed in 1970 in casablanca morocco and they were really pivotal in establishing what's known as moroccan uh, shabi music which is basically like just means popular moroccan or rural uh, um, and folk music and the members of uh, Nasa Juan didn't shy away from like political issues. Um, and given Morocco's struggles with colonialism and, and also um, struggles between the indigenous Amazigh people and the Arabic presence in the region, it put them, like a lot of other musicians in this rabbit hole, in a bit of a, like, a precarious position. But ultimately, that type of position really ends up uniting them with like, the everyday people in Morocco um, and, and cements them truly as like the people's band. And and there are a few examples of bands in the world like like Nessa Juan where you are where they are like truly the people's band. So the lyrical content of Nessa Juan was extremely well known um, throughout Morocco and even North Africa, and and helped them spark like certain social and cultural movements throughout the region. Um, so it's, it's you know considered to be very colloquial and moving, and like their lyrical content is like basically just as important as the music itself. In some cases, it's even more important. But this track in particular, this track is called uh, Mahamuni, and it is from their 1976 self-titled album, which I highly recommend you pick up. Uh, Nasa Juan's music is extremely hypnotic and trance-like, um, and that definitely speaks to the Ganawa and Sufi influences in their music, um, and Ganawa music as a whole, um, which is definitely a rabbit hole unto itself, which I hope to go down someday, but um, I don't know. That's one where I'm definitely going to be needing some assistance uh, from someone who has some actually knowledge and cred. Um, so if anyone out there knows a Ganawa expert, uh, please hit me up and make an introduction. So this track is, uh, I would say, pretty representative of the signature sound of Nasa Juan. There's been a few members circulating throughout this group. However, the core membership during like their kind of golden period remained consistent. And the music is fully acoustic. 
Um, you'll hear banjo in the song and a lot of their music. Um, and it's a, definitely like a prominent instrument. Its use was definitely like, I would say, unconventional in the East. However, if you kind of take like a more zoomed out view about the banjo, kind of where Nessa Joanna is situated, like the modern banjo's roots stem from West Africa. So this is a little bit of like a full circle type uh, scenario. And the way the band plays is is really just like unified. That's like the, the, the word that I think is the most apt here. There's a lot of these like melodic counterparts that are occurring at so many levels um, within all of the guitars and string instruments. But the group vocals are really like where it's all at. Like th this is very, very like communal and ecstatic music. And I love how hypnotizing and mesmerizing like their performances are here. Like everything has a very unadulterated and live sound. And besides the records, like one of the best places that you can see this documented is in a film actually called Trances which was restored back in uh, 2007, I think, by the Criterion Collection. Um, and also by Martin Scorsese, who uh, kind of famously called these guys the Rolling Stones of North Africa. So, um, you know, I highly recommend seeking this movie out because it is this, like, amazing, intimate, and kind of freeform uh, footage of the band, like, performing in France, um, I think a couple other places in Europe, and throughout North Africa as well. And it shows you just how like communal and studious the band was. I mean, Nasa Joanne are one of those like troops that is truly like more of a more than just a band. Like the music is more so a vehicle for, for something larger. And they use the kind of like interconnectedness of their spirituality to translate that in a way that few bands ever could.
Okay, we are going to Egypt for this next one. This is Balih Hamdi's song, Mawood, and I discovered this one from the Sublime Frequencies compilation, Instrumental Modal Pop of 1970s Egypt, which collects a lot of uh, uh, Balih Hamdi's uh, solo compositions. So Hamdi wrote and composed for a lot of like the most renowned artists in the Arab world, people like Umm Kulthum, and Abdul Halim Hafez. Um, so this guy is like by all means considered to be like one of the most vital 20th century composers of the Arabic world. And and what you're really hearing on this track and, and many others, especially off this comp, is is kind of his hand-picked group of like musicians, probably a pretty small ensemble, maybe five or six people. And it's a true melding of like Arabic stylings and, and really Western like stylings. You hear jazz and classical um, and even music from like further east than Egypt in this. And his music during this era really ended up being like so stylized and like I would say like way the fuck ahead of his time. Like you get these beautiful eastern melodies that are colliding with like jazz and even a little bit of like Latin sounding percussion and kind of these like psychedelic rock keys and organs. And, and it's something like a, a surf group's like rhythm section kind of jamming with like classical Arabic musicians. And I don't know what it is about like Arabic music in particular, um, but they just pick up on like keyboard and synth sounds from like all over the place. Like they're just like all about dialing in these amazing like shreddy kind of like keyboard tones as like the lead melodies and just kind of going off with it. It, it just seems to be like something that repeats itself over history in terms of like our, our fascination with keyboards. But this track, you know, is really just another one that I think, you know, kind of gets slotted maybe as exotica sometimes. But this music sounds incredibly modern, like even today. And I think any fan of like Eastern sounds that kind of adventure around to other parts of the world is going to love Hamdi's amazing ear for composition and as well as his will for just creating something like totally new and innovative, particularly in that part of the world.
so this is definitely a truly like one of a fucking kind album. I mean, when I found out this existed, I probably like laughed um, or at least expected to hear something like just spectacularly silly, uh, probably even just like a throwaway, basically. And and I mean, I guess I can't control whether like other people might hear this <laughs> and actually think that upon listening. But I don't know. I, I find this album to be so charming. Uh, it's so compelling. And it's absolutely like you cannot deny that it isn't like light years ahead of its time. So the album I'm talking about is called Synthesizing 10 Ragas to a Disco Beat. The artist is Charajit Singh. And the track here is called Raga Bupali. And yeah, this is exactly 10 Ragas to a Disco Beat. The title is very true to what you're going to get here. It's basically Indian classical ragas set to electronic, like largely four on the floor, kind of like thumping disco beats. So Charanjit Singh was a musician from Mumbai who did a lot of like studio and session work. Um, the dude is definitely a guitarist, like an amazing accomplished guitarist. Um, as well as a synth and keyboard wizard. And he played on a lot of like Bollywood ensemble materials for, for film especially. But in 1982, this uh, crazy man decided to use a Jupiter 8 synthesizer, uh, 808s and 303 bass synths to make all of the music on this album. And in making this album, um, I put a little quote here, uh, Sharanjit said, there was a lot of disco music in films back in 1982. So I thought, why not do something different using disco music only? I got an idea to play all the Indian ragas and give them a disco beat and turn off the tabla. And I did it. And it turned out good. Which is uh, such an awesome quote. It's just like so uh, a matter of fact about, <laughs> about like what he set out to do and like what the results were. And and I will confirm like this shit is good. Like it, it's simultaneously a, a little bit goofy. Like I won't deny that. But it's also like... I would say wondrous like in a lot of ways like you'll certainly recognize kind of the adherence to certain scales and riffing that is so tied to indian ragas but you know imagine it sped up to like a pretty high bpm and with these like majestic kind of arpeggiated synth lines that are floating through your left and your right audio channels um the bass is also extremely awesome it's like the steady uh bass lines on the 303 and just kind of thumps along and then you get all these like proto like acid techno like type tones and sounds that are super processed and they really just take everything like over the edge and it's just it's just crazy that this was made uh so early into the 80s because uh, from what I understand, like it absolutely predated like many forms of like techno, including acid techno. And and who knows if his music like actually made its way onto more Western shores and kind of sparked those movements in electronic music. Or if this was just like truly like an island of a record onto itself that didn't get discovered until years later. But this is just so advanced on every level. And I'd honestly rather listen to this than like 98% of techno that has like been made in the last 30 years. But yeah, I think a lot of people are going to enjoy this one. Um, the entire album holds up to good luck finding like a vinyl copy of this under 200 bucks though. Um, so until there's another uh, reissue, you kind of got those like weirdo YouTube channels that uh, help ensure that this uh, record is introduced to new audiences and, and also just kind of lives on in the canon of bizarre albums that accidentally might have invented a completely new genre of music.
All right, we have reached the end. Our final destination is Korea. And actually, there is a kind of decent chance that people have heard this track because I think it's become a bit of like a low-key hit among kind of like global music, uh, the global music world and kind of the, the stratification of streaming playlists and like interest in kind of exotic psychedelic music. And I mean, like, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they're like, this track is jamming in like uh, a Chipotle right now. <laughs> but anyway, you know, cranky old man shit aside, this track is called Twilight. Um, it also goes by the name The Evening Sun, and it was written by the legendary guitarist Shin Jung Hyun. And um, this beautiful psych gem was actually performed by Shin Jung Hyun and his band, which he called The Men along with a uh, vocalist Jang Hyun. So I first heard this track off of the uh, the compilation Beautiful Rivers and Mountains, the psychedelic rock sound of South Korea's uh, Shin Hyung Yoon, 1958 to 1974. Um, this is a really great comp that was put out by the uh, always awesome Light in the Attic Records. But this track was also featured on the on the really great um and and pretty popular i think uh comp from now again records called forge your own chains um and this is a comp that basically collected like uh a few uh obscure heavy psych ballads and kind of like dirgy songs from like the late 60s through the mid 70s kind of giving you a a less pastoral less uh you know poppy kind of lens into like psychedelic rock during this time from all over the world but either way, like once you've heard the song, you have no choice but to be enchanted by it. And I think it's, this is just like one of the most perfect pieces of like psychedelic rock and pop music. And and this I think is the kind of thing that like your Ariel Pinks and your more kind of pop leaning sides of like Ty Siegel and maybe even the OC is kind of like bow down to and worship. Um, so I kind of categorize it as like a true blueprint for kind of lo-fi psych. Um, for generations to come and it's really just like a gorgeous ballad with these really deep really resonant vocals and this you know almost silly sounding falsetto on the chorus the synth melodies are so distinctly drenched in like korean folk melody and the vocals also just have that kind of like dramatic enunciation that you know personally i know so well from like hearing traditional korean tracks and like taxi cabs and like also people like korean folks like singing old Korean standards to karaoke. Like this is when I lived out in Korea for a little while. So um, this track is definitely rooted in, in, you know, the 60s and 70s kind of American and British like psychedelic rock of the time. I mean, it even reminds me a little bit of like uh, Nights in White Satin or maybe even something off of like Scott Walker's four album, but perhaps a little less like dramatic and, and, just kind of warped <laughs> we're talking scott walker here right but i just love this track um it's got a really somber feel to it it's a bit sad um and i just i just love a good sad dirgy psych ballad there's there's not that many of them out there and, th and there should be a lot more um as for uh shin uh jung hyun the man was definitely like a pivotal figure in like korean folk and rock kind of traditions in the light in the attic comp like liner notes they really describe how like the president of south korea at the time um was basically like surveilling like shin jung hyun and kind of accusing him of like subversive activities so 
the president asked him to record a song kind of in praise of him. And, and in true punk fashion, uh, Shin Jung-hyun refused and from that point on was like really ostracized in Korean society by the powers that be. And um, he was imprisoned and, and beaten and tortured as a result. So again, like super fucked up story, but it is for a lot of reasons a common thread amongst artists who are really pushing boundaries, particularly in tradition and sort of these like more dogmatic kind of stratas of society. And, and it's all a shame, of course, but it also makes listening to an artist who you know like paid a huge sacrifice in making their music, it makes the whole listening experience a bit deeper. And and that's another aspect of discovering um, artists on like compilations and like reissues. That's that's another reason why it's so satisfying. Like more often than not, the label is really doing like a labor of love here and is putting like a good amount of work into like say the lighter notes and the physical packaging and like old photos and stuff like that. And to me, there's like nothing better than throwing on a record and kind of absorbing all of the music um, for the first time or the tenth time. And and you're doing this at the same time that you're just you know opening up those liner notes and those booklets and really learning about the artist and kind of taking in the historical context, context that they existed in. And I think that's a big part of why I'm so drawn to like global music compilations that focus on a particular part of the world or a particular type of sound. I mean, these comps are kind of like the original, like, uh, you know, streaming playlists. And there's just so many quality and dedicated reissues label out there. And, and, and it's really a joy to like uh, uncover a brand new one and kind of like uh, treat their entire discography as its own rabbit hole. So, um, you know, I've tried to, to let you all know like which labels were putting out any of these comps that we've gone through in each of these eight tracks. But please feel free to DM me or email me at thesoniccloth at gmail.com. I'm happy to recommend some more. I'm also really wanting to hear uh, what comps that you hold in high esteem that maybe I haven't found out yet. And I think that is going to do it for today. This was volume two of the Fringe Psych series, Eastern Migration. I promise we'll see you sooner than later with a couple of guest episodes that I am very excited to bring you. So um, let's go out on this one. Let's close this thing out with South Korea's site guru, Shin Jung Hyun.
하얀 사람이기에 Oh, oh, oh.